You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 134, Meat Hunter Strikes Big. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick is ecstatic about his recent big buck kill. He doesn't hold back on any of the details and drama of that Saturday night here in early October. So sit back and enjoy a good old buck story on this episode of Huntivore. Well, good morning, folks. Grab your favorite beverage and gather around. Gather around, gather around. Everybody get in tight here. Everybody get comfortable. We're, how, we're about to hear a buck story. Not just any buck story, but a meat hunter that came out triumphant at the early part of October. I'm very, I don't even know what to say. I'm still buzzing about the whole experience. This has just been an amazing start to the, 20, the 2023 season. Not one that is totally not unheard of, but at the same time, for me, it's a combination of many different things. I mean, putting into practice things that I've learned from podcasts, from reading, at the same time, taking the educated risks, taking the calculated risks to make something happen. Stepping outside of my comfort zone of being absolute safe and putting it all on the line. That's hard to do when I get used to being things that are, I don't want to say like done deals or or sure, like 100% sure that things are going to happen or waiting for the odds to be in my favor. But yeah, I learned a few few lessons along the way even even in a victory more often than not you learn most of your lessons in defeats and believe me I got plenty of those to be learning from but I'm just really excited to be able to tell this tale of how I got my Michigan eight point it started out uh where I wasn't going to get a chance to hunt the morning I kind of had a, it was a either an either or um, at this point we were still really busy with sports. Um, yeah, maybe morning wasn't even an option. I think we had to be at the soccer fields, but anyway, I think we had an early morning at the soccer fields. We came home and then the boys, uh, and the wife had, had a birthday party. Um, 
I got myself to be out of said birthday party. I did not have to join in the festivities, which was wonderful, because I got a chance to get my my mind in the right space. I got a chance to prep my gear, go through uh, my little ozone box. I got one of those uh, a little ozone generators, the cheap knockoff ones, and I put that inside of a tote, and that's my... <laughs> that's my my ozone box i guess so that way i could i could get all of my equipment prepped everything felt very good as far as uh being prepared for what was going on so i was actually doing a few things in the house that midday and i thought you know what i am going to put on uh a classic favorite i'm going to put on escanaba and de moonlight and go ahead and watch that movie i like that movie um, for the, for a, for a number of reasons. One is it really highlights the, like the, just the sociability of, um, of hunting here in Michigan. There's just a deep, rich tradition and how a lot of stuff can get overplayed or a lot of stuff, you know, just with guys going up into the woods, like you can just really like, it, it really is a little bit of a slapstick and it's a little far, far outreaching, but at the same time, it also sends home a good message that, at any point here in Michigan and you go to deer camp, anything is possible when it comes to getting your prized animal. And that lore, that that bit of, of legend is just really fun. I, I really appreciate that that movie. Um, and maybe I also uh, identify a little bit with, uh, with Ruben in that movie and the fact that I haven't gotten my big buck. Now, I say that as I look at my my two year old seven point sitting here. Um, he's he's a nice size, and you know what? For for thirteen years, he was my biggest buck. I'm I'm looking at him currently now. Uh, it's it's a Euro skull. Actually, it's a it's a broken skull. I need to create a a skull mount of him now. Uh, he fell off. Uh, a shelf and, and shattered, but I, I just, I, I look at it, at that buck and I just appreciate that whole story. And that was back in 2014, but yeah, for 13 years, he stood as my largest deer at the same time, sitting over my shoulder is my first buck, my little forky. And anytime that I am on a video, uh, podcast or I, I have a chance to be uh, on camera I try I try to make sure that he's in view because that little forky started it all and as much as he is not huge in the antlers he's huge as far as my story and for the longest time and even even now antler size does not determine the hunter antler size does not determine um how good you are. Mediocre baseball players hit home runs every day. But you know what? Those mediocre home runs are absolutely important to that ball player in their development as becoming greater and greater. And so, yeah, my story here of getting my buck is a story of an average hunter, a guy who really enjoys venison, Having an opportunity, getting a chance, here's your opening.
and given the question, are you going to take it? And this time, I full-on went for it, and you'll just have to find out how it went. So here I was, walking out to uh, the stand. Um, there is an area closer behind the farm where uh, it, it creates a, a point, and this point sits up level with the fields. And this point kind of leads out into a section of the fields that is easy access from the woods. This area also holds a lot of oak trees. And being on this top shelf um, that extends out into the field, or at least out into, into a point here, is a really attractive place for deer. As I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, in fact, one of them here I do have to shout out because this guy got me thinking about the idea of staging areas, and that would be Dan Johnson. So thinking of or finding this place as a staging area, I I see a lot of deer activity. I am constantly, whether I'm actually going in for a hunt or we're just going around the farm uh, in the side-by-side or in the gator, that we we constantly see deer at this point. And they hold up or they pile up in this area early to then head out to the field. And this staging area has oak trees that they'll sit there and continue to feed on. There is a lot of thick brush that uh, creates almost like a curtain. And then once you get on the inside, it really is a dark canopy, uh, really closed in. Not a ton of growth uh, or underground growth, not underground, excuse me low ground growth, um, but on the edges. And there's a lot of breaks in this area where it goes from like really dark timber to really light, open, really thick brush. And so these little pockets hold these deer, deer's attention, I should say. Uh, They nibble on things as they just come in from the afternoon, and then evening they finally slip out into the field. And I have found that putting myself in this spot has been pivotal. Now, the spot is also uh, drastically next to uh, a ravine or a wet spot. So I have a watering, uh, I don't want to say uh, an always wet area. It does dry up quite often, but it, is ter- it has become a drain area for the air for a large section of the back of the farm there. And so it all culminates down in this low area that, that deer do water at, a lot of wildlife water at this at this spot. But off this ravine, it creates this funnel. And I've then, again, put these pieces together. And if I put myself in this funnel on a track from, from the ravine, kind of as it, as it opens up a little bit, and you follow that up, it's the path of least resistance. And it comes right by this spot to the staging area. I have just seen a ton of activity early on in the season. And this has been mental data that I've been putting together. Again, as I listen to, you know, these amazing buck killers that they talk about data, they talk about uh, trail cam picks, they talk about uh, different pieces of information that you can put together. I'm finally putting this together mentally. Like, you have had some really good experiences in this area. Why don't you take advantage of that and sit there? 
So it was a conscious decision to sit at the staging area. I had a miss on a buck. Oh, 2018, 2019. I had another experience with a buck here, but way after shooting light. And then not too far from this spot, I think maybe maybe 20 yards or so in a different tree, I have taken multiple does from. So this area I know I have had success, and so that's where I knew this needs to be a spot that I'm going in. The cold front had settled in to Michigan, into this area, and rain was uh, on and off all morning. And then it was going to quit uh, roughly about uh, 4 o'clock. And so I wanted to be out there a little bit earlier so I could get set up. I mean, early part of the season, you're still you're still getting used to your equipment again. You know, it's one of those things like you once you learn to ride a bike, you, you're never going to forget how to ride a bike. But that first time that you do get on the bike, you're going to be a little shaky. And then you'll remember what's going on. That's kind of the same similar. Like, okay. I've gone through my equipment again. I've, I'm actually switched over to um, some ropes instead of the uh, ratchet cin- cinches for my sticks or the hawk cinches for my sticks. I've actually got rope rope mods for those. And those are actually worked out really well. And so getting up there early, actually getting up in the rain, I think was also helpful. It started out as a bit of a detriment just because like I, I wore my jacket. I didn't wear my pants. But as I get up in the tree, like I'm in this thick canopy, and so I'm, even though it's raining, a lot of the rain is being held by the leaves, and so it's a slow trickle. But then when I found out, or then, I mean, usually as you find out, is that it then continues to rain on you an awful lot, because it's now these rain, these uh, soaked leaves just continue to shed water. So anytime a gust of wind would come through, we would just get dumped on from all this held water. Uh, so it was one of those, like, yeah, even though the rain stopped, I still had another hour, hours worth of getting wet. But the night started out promising. Got up into the tree, got settled up, and I felt very confident. What I what I failed to uh, realize is that with this cold front coming in, I think it zapped a lot of my batteries. And my headlamp was a little weak, but I thought, you know what? It'll be fine. We will just stick with that through, and I will change batteries out when we get back. I turned on my pin lights to see if those would, uh, see if, you know, just to make sure which one was brights and which ones were the dims. Um, in this area, because it does get a lot of uh, thick canopy and dark areas, but then at the same time backlit by really bright areas. It really plays with your pins, and having a light in this area is very helpful. And so I, I turned that on, and it was also the batteries were showing to be very weak. I could see them start to flicker, and I was like, this is this is going to be the last hunt with these. These got to get changed out, but uh, I was hoping for the best. We get roughly around 5 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock, I have my first sighting of deer. I have a doe and a fawn, and they're walking in, and they come from. They come from the west side, heading east. Again, they're coming to this this point, this uh, this staging area. 
and they filter into an opening, and they sit in this tall, thick brush. And they're nibbling at uh, blackberry stems, excuse me, black raspberry stems. They're picking through a lot of the marigold that's there. There's just a lot of, like, just thick growth, just natural growth all in this area. And so they're picking their way through it. They're looking on the ground for, for acorns. And then uh, they're just nibbling on woody brows. But they're just filtering on through, and I could see that she is a big doe. This is something that I'm quite enticed by. So it piques my attention, and I range them, and they're at 40 yards. It's a bit outside what I want to try to do. Have I taken 40-yard shots? Absolutely. But never 40, yard, 40 yards through a bunch of brush. So we're holding off. The two deer filter through. And they get, oh, yeah, they probably get to my 11 o'clock now. And, or excuse me, my 1 o'clock. And from that point, they have come into 30. But they're still, I could barely make them out through the brush. They were pretty much silhouetted inside of this tall grass. They appear out at 12 o'clock as far as my where I'm facing right out in front of me. And I could see the doe's head, and I could see the fawn behind her, and I could see them then begin to uh, move away from me. And they are then they pop out at about 44 yards, and they are now open. And so I get a good look. This is a very mature doe. I think this is one of the nanny does that is still out on our farm. We've got a couple of them that are just old. They're just wise. And I appreciate how they can continue to pop out uh, twins. I appreciate how they can just continue to build up the population of deer in our area. I love for them to stick around, but sometimes they can be a thorn in my side. And I really thought this was going to be a problem. I thought, she's going to get downwind of me, and my night is going to be over. But I think just with the rain and how maybe the thermals were already sucking all of my scent down into the ravine behind me, that she, again, had no idea that I was there. She was not alerted. But there I had a good look at her at 44 yards. Too far to take a shot. Too far to take a for-sure shot anyway. And I let, I let them go. They filter off over and uh, lay down for the rest of the mm-hmm. afternoon until they're ready to go out into the field but I got I got discouraged over the fact that was that it was that my hunt was that the night uh that I that I had worked up for was this going to be it so I can't say that I passed on an opportunity I'd like to say that I never pass on an opportunity I'm very opportunistic Given the chance, I'm sure if she was at 20 yards, this would be this would have been a far shorter, far shorter story, because I would have made it happen with that doe, what I would have been extremely happy with anyway. But I I chose to let them go, I guess, <laughs> chose or had to because of the shot. So I sat there again, and we waited and we waited, and there was a long pause between the next sighting of deer. Roughly at about 7.10, a doe filters in behind me. 
She came from the ravine, from the east, moving west, and she stops nine yards behind me. She's she's over my shoulder. Looks like a, a nice sized doe. It's not the same doe. The fawn isn't in the area. Uh and yeah, she was again by her by herself. But she filters on behind me and just kind of holds up right there. So I'm beginning to pivot to see what kind of shot angle do I have at nine yards. Um, it was going to be a steep shot. It was going to be one that I really had to focus on. I pick up my bow and my pin lights. I watch them flicker and flicker and finally go out. Well, I'm out. I'm now without my pin lights at extreme dusk here in Michigan that I can see in, I can see in black and white, but I cannot see colors. And so picking up those pins was going to be very difficult. I had to come up with a game plan. Do I just put the, the bow down and I'm done for the evening? And I just wait for things to develop underneath me and then I'll get down at dark? Or do I use the pin housing? Do I use the site housing as my guide? And I've done this before um, in practice to not use my pins, but just to use my intuition and shoot um, and hit a target. And I thought if I get a deer that is a chip shot that is going to be within 20 yards, I'm going to use the, the housing. I'm going to make sure that I put the whole body inside the housing and make that shot. That's going to help me be as accurate as I could be in this low of light. Well, as she's sitting here and as I'm coming up with this plan, I begin to hear off to the east in the distance grunts. Brap. Brap. I hear this buck. I thought it was a little early for all this grunting to be happening, being that it, it was still uh, you know, the first well, it was like the the first week and a half of October. Brap. Man, that one is hot to trot. He is on to something. And I then see him appear at about 60 yards. This super large, thick, dark body walking in my direction. He's at a distance that I cannot make out any of the headgear. And I have to take my rangefinder. It has a clarifying lens. It doesn't necessarily have a magnifying lens. But I put that up to my eye and I took a look at this buck. And I could just see that his shoulders were broad. His head was low. And I just saw white. I just saw tines. I saw headgear. And immediately I took my rangefinder and set it down. This was a shooter. I am not going to focus on anything more of his of his antlers you mean you didn't you didn't count his tines no I couldn't tell you if it was a six point I couldn't tell you if it was an eight point I couldn't tell you any of that information all that I knew is that a tank was coming my way and that body size said everything to me this is a shooter he's walking in and he's head low and it is pointing directly at the doe I grab my bow, 
and I take a pivot step on my platform. And of course, I went with a cheap platform, and I'm getting a cheap platform result. I get a squeak. The dough turns inside out and bolts 30 yards and quickly turns around. In In this crazed fury, I freeze. And in fact, the buck freezes. He, sta- he stops in his tracks right there. And this doe, I could see her just frantically scanning, looking for where that sound came from. She was on super high alert. This buck did not seem to care. He didn't seem to hear it, didn't seem to bother him. He then slowly makes a turn, and he starts heading for her in another direction. It's brought him now where he is going to be going broadside to me. I pull my rangefinder out again. I hit a range and I cannot see the numbers. I look it up at the, I take it look it up in the sky and I see the numbers 22. At that range, he is a chip shot for me. 20, he's 18 to 22 yards. And I say that because I don't have the auto calculating rangefinder as far as what the angle is, but I know that I'm pretty high up in a tree. I'm at 25, and I know that there's a depression on that side, so that deer is even a little bit lower than me. So whatever that hypotenuse of 22 is, he's probably at an actual 20 or 18 yards. That deer begins to slowly move towards that doe. I then get that pivot step. I go ahead and I draw, and I begin to settle in my back tension. I have a feet, my trigger finger, I can feel it on uh, the trigger of the release. And I begin to settle in that shot. And I'm settling my housing on the shoulder, just behind the shoulder of this buck. As I got that shot set, the doe was watching me do every move. This doe blows, takes a few bounds, blows again, and just sends herself out into the field. She's out of here. I, again, my attention, my eyes roll up to watch this happen of the, of the doe. My attention quickly returns to the buck. What is he going to do? Where is he going to go? And this buck freezes and again in his tracks. I could tell this buck has avoided danger a lot of times because as he stood there frozen, he looks off to the east where the, the doe had gone. He pivots. He doesn't move his body, but he just moves his neck, and he sweeps his neck, swinging all the way around his shoulder and looks behind or off to his uh, right side. And, in fact, he's now looking at my tree. He's looking underneath me. And I get a look. The last look I have of this deer looking in my direction is this tall, scanning view of this buck. Just an absolute specimen. I can't see his headgear, but I could just make out these details, the white patches of his throat, uh, the whites around his eye, and then again, the huge, dark body behind him. He slowly pivots, and I putting together, he's going to come back the way that he arrived. He's going to try to sneak out the back door. 
And so as he swings around, his nose goes away, and now he's going to come back around, essentially doing a 180 fan. And I let him come all the way around. And as he's making that, that, uh, that fan around, as he's making that swing, I told myself, this is the shot that you need to take. There will not be another one. This will be a missed opportunity. You need to send this arrow as soon as he comes broadside. As he comes around, I settled again that pen, that uh, sight housing right there on the front part of his uh, body. Just try to guess behind his shoulder. And I sent the arrow. Thwack! Smack! A large crack hit this, or a large crack echoed from the deer. He bounds two jumps, and then he's running through brush, and you're hearing him snag. You're hearing th- limbs crash. You're hearing thumps from his feet as he's pounding the ground and he gets 50 yards and then all of a sudden everything goes silent did did he just drop right there did he just fall just did he stop and he's looking back at me and trying to figure out what's going on at that moment my body began to give in to the adrenaline. My body began to shake and quiver, and I'm trying to make sure that I can get every last bit of detail of what just happened. I know that I have a shot on his left side because he swung around. I know that I've hit bone at some point. I know that I have gotten something solid. The way that it did, he did react, though, he reacted like he was hit. He bolted out of there hard and given where I made my shot that was the vitals did I did I hit shoulder blade did I hit backside shoulder blade have I hit something completely different do I exactly know where that arrow landed no I don't so there's still a lot of questions but I'm trying to hold on to every bit of information of where this deer's gone so we can begin tracking good I grab my phone and I immediately send to my uh, my group of buddies, buck hit, buck hit. There is, there, there's excitement now. Texts are flying in. They want to know different pieces of information. We've uh, we've learned as we go along with this. You ask these pieces of information, so you make the hunter have to relive it, have to know what he's going, know what's happening, so that we can have a, a good proper track on uh, the backside of it. So I'm answering their questions. And finally, like I, my thumbs, again, were so frozen and so shaken with, with adrenaline and excitement that I finally, I, I couldn't type anymore. My, my one friend gives me a call and, and wants to hear, uh, like, just some details. And he said, so what are we doing? And I said, well, we got to let him lay down. Nothing less than an hour before we even go try to find an arrow. Even before we go to find the track, let's just give him an hour. So I said, let's meet at 9 o'clock. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifled barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. 
Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tapacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tapacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your cue. Dry-aged steaks used to be a steakhouse-only indulgence. An old-world charcuterie was pricey due to being imported or created at a small batch-specific scale. Thanks to Umai Dry, their synthetic dry-aging bags and casings allow you to create these meat-crafting treats in your own kitchen. Working in tandem with your fridge, the Umai Dry bag material allows moisture and air to pass through, making it possible to dry-age large cuts of steaks or roasts. Paired with their curing and seasoning kits, along with safe and easy-to-follow instructions, salamis and dry sausage are well within your grasp. Use the link in the show notes and sign up for the newsletter to receive 10% off your order. Umai Dry, helping us elevate our wild game from the home kitchen. Nine o'clock rolls by. I get two buddies that, that show up. One is a little, one was a little behind, wasn't sure he was going to make it. So my two friends help me out and we, we load up in the, the gator and we head back to the, the shot site. I, I scanned for the arrow in the, in the shot area and we, we couldn't find the arrow. I have reflective, uh, wraps on my arrows and, you know, given a clean, clean sweep, um, those pop those bright up real light real nice uh in a in a flashlight and we got none of that in this area and so we were going on uh, a guesstimate on where exactly he was standing and then trying to work from there it wasn't too long and we found uh where he was thumping the ground we fought we found his his uh track his footprints deep gouges in the earth uh where he was pushing and he was really trying to to hustle out of there we find scat where it looked like yeah this animal got the shit scared out of him that's that's what we found <laughs> so immediately it was well do it did we hit uh you know did, did i hit intestines did i hit gut you know if we've got if, we, if we've got scat that looks like this you know we start to put pieces together more footprints uh more track no blood no arrow. We get to the 50-yard area where I lost track uh, of where he uh, of where he went or where he uh, of what he did out of my vision at that point as well. And it it led us to this depression where it was either his, he's going to go up or he's going to go down. We're deciding what we're going to be able to do. We're trying to figure out what what needs to happen. And then at that point, my phone rings. Friend number three had finally arrived. So I left my two friends. Hey, pick her out, check it out, and I'll be back in just a minute with another one, and we can be, we'll pick up the other track. So I left, picked up the friend, came back. As I came back, I saw that uh, the guys that I had left out there 
their flashlights were down. They chose to go down into the ravine, into the hollow, and I could see them scanning and looking. I bring up the first, or the, the buddy that I picked up, I we bring him up to speed. So I show him the shot site. I show him where where we had track. I showed him the scat that we had, and we worked our way up to that 50-yard line. My two uh, friends that were at the bottom call up. Hey, stay up there. We're coming up to you. It didn't feel right. They didn't call us down to say, hey, we have blood. They didn't they didn't beckon us to come come join them in that search, which which at that point felt like uh, it felt hard. It felt like a defeat. Um, I was not by, by any means ready to give up. We still had a lot to do. It is still early on, but I was mulling over my options. Uh, do I do I get a dog? Do I wait till morning? If I had just a piece of information, if I had my arrow, we could. I, I bet I could make a far better decision in what's going on. And I just felt like I we hadn't found that yet. We hadn't found that pivotal piece of evidence to just make this a solid call. They come up and they greet my buddy. We talk there for a minute. Each of us out of the cooler, uh, grab a beer just to get refocused, just to get resettled. We finish our beer, and my one friend that was down in the hollow said, all right, Nick, do you want to keep tracking? And it was a serious question. And I told him, without too much hesitation, yes, we got to find something. And he said, or do you want to go walk up on your buck? Because he's down here at the bottom of the hollow. <laughs> Hot dang, I took it hook, line, and sinker. He got me good, making me think that we were off the trail, and he was dead down at the bottom. If I were to put those pieces together, and from what we found later, my shot entered just a little bit high. My arrow went in. Uh, it, it clipped the spine uh, as it went through. And then after the field dress, I never hit any gut. But then it came through the spinal cord and it went into, uh, it would have been the right lung and chewed that right lung all up and then actually exited out the animal and nipped a shoulder. We... Uh, we take a quick moment, and uh, after we made that shot, he went about 50 yards. And then I think at that point, his back legs gave out on him, being that it was a spinal shot. I'm sure his bounds did not help uh, now that he's got a bit of a fractured vertebrae, that his back legs gave out. And so he pulled himself to the bottom of this hill. And with that uh, that vital hit, being that his lung was all chewed up, he bled out right there pretty quickly. My guess is that that deer died when I got out of the tree. Like, I think he was he was quickly expelled. But now we have the buck. We know where he's at. And I had to take a timeout, and I said, you know what? My boys wanted to go on this track, and because I wasn't sure of what it was going to be, I told them to stay home, but that Dad would be back when he had some information. So I then, at that point, without even seeing the buck, 
said, guys, you wait here. I got to go get the kids. I jumped on the gator. I'd already made a phone call up to the wife and told the boys, hey, get the boots on. I'm going to need them. I drove up to the house and standing on the front porch, boots on, coats on, their flashlights in hand. I had two boys that were really wanting to go. My oldest and my middle. They were excited. They wanted to help out so much. And so they jumped in the gator, but I was missing my third boy. I peeked my head inside, and I see uh, my little guy. He is curled up on the couch. He's watching a show. You know, it's at this point, it's about 9 o'clock. It's on the weekend. It's on a Saturday. He's watching his show. He now has control of the remote, and I was like, Archie, are you going to join in? He looks over at me, and he's just like, I'll see it when it's in the shop. Like, (laughs) he was comfortable. I wasn't going to mess with that. But I took my two other boys. We quickly drove back to the spot. And there, at that point, I said, all right, let's go through our steps here. And so I showed them our our path. We got to where that 50 yards was at. And we were then to follow uh, one of my other friends. And he led us through what looked like uh, a bobsled or a barrel had been shoved down this ravine you could see the path where this deer had pulled himself down and it went at like a 45 uh it cut or not a 45 but it went um along this ridge here he kind of side skirted didn't go straight down just side skirted he went he got around a tree plunged down into the lowest part of this wet spot not into the water water again was still a few uh you know, probably like 30 yards away. But then he then pulled himself up into the thickest pricker forest that I have ever witnessed. It, this stuff is thick. The base of these briars, I shoot some of them were like a base of quarters. This is just wet, fertile ground that gets a bunch of sunlight from, from some from fallen trees. This is just a tangled mess. And as we're walking up, I sweep my uh, flashlight and I see and I see my arrow. I see that reflective wrap flicker. And so I know where where my arrow is at. We walk a little bit further and I look in the tunnel of where uh, that buck had gone into these prickers. I see the arrow. And then I see the roundedness of his body humped over. It is huge. He is a massive animal. We follow his path that he knocked these uh, these briars down, and we get into this. It's it's like it's almost like a. We feel so closed in. We're just surrounded by prickers, and here is this animal laying right there. I pull his head up. And I just grab hold of one of the antlers, and it takes a full grip in order to pull out that main frame. It fills, fills a paw up really well. His snout is just elongated. He is an old, mature deer. Huge, thick main beams and those eight points that stick straight up. He's got what looks like either fighting wounds or like uh, scuffs on his back, or 
was he reaching back and itching? I'm, I'm not sure. But he's got these unique marks where he's pulled hair out of his hide on his back. Again, his elongated snout, uh, just a huge aspect of his body. Just a very cool buck. I grab my arrow and I pull. And as I pull out, I don't feel the resistance of the broadhead. And I I just cleanly pull that arrow out and I see that it has been snapped. My arrow made a full pass through going through his, uh, through his spinal cord into his lungs and out the other side. That arrow had stuck in and had probably gone right up to his fletchings. And probably the loud crack that I heard was either hitting that spinal cord, hitting the shoulder bone on the opposite side, or when that deer took off, he ended up cutting my arrow in half. That could have been it as well. He left the front end back up the trail someplace. After it protruded through, it broke off. So at least I had half my arrow at that point, and now we had our buck here. We get him. We take we take a few pictures. The boys are stoked. They have not seen an animal this big yet. I think this is the biggest animal that they have seen. This is the biggest animal that I have ever gotten. And I'm just in awe holding this buck up here. And at that point, the question was raised out, hey, so you're going to do a euro or are you going to get a full, are you going to get a shoulder mount? And again, without too much hesitation, I was like, this guy is getting full shoulder mount. We are going to get him done right. And he is going to go up on the wall. He has no name. He has little to no history with me. But when he came into my life, it was an epic adventure where I didn't have my pin sights, or excuse me, my pin lights. I had to go on instinct. I had to take the calculated risk. If you want something big in life, you have to take risks. And this was one of those moments. I'm going to chalk this up. There's a there's a few of those moments. I wouldn't necessarily say the epsilon of uh, wedding day and, uh, you know, the birth of my kids, but like, like tier 1.5. I have quite a few memories in there that it's like these are going to stick with me to the deathbed. And this this is one of those memories right here is that. I, I am going to remember every aspect of this, that I am excited for somebody to ask, how did you get that buck as he's hanging up on the wall? And at that point, I could tell him, hey, sit down. You've got a good 45-minute long story. <laughs> In real time, a most of this eclipsed within 15 minutes, and yet it felt like a lifetime. The track... Yeah, it took a little longer, but because of logistics, it was it was a longer night. But what a successful night! At that point, I was not tired. I was not. Uh, I didn't feel any fatigue. I was just buzzing with excitement. We brought the buck up and out to the field edge. I field dressed him there on the side of the woods. I kept the heart and I kept the liver. I at that point I. It, I just wanted to get the buck home. I wanted to get him back to the shop so we could hang him up. So I did a, a complete gut job. I didn't get the call fat, and I didn't get the kidneys off this buck. 
but we're not done yet. We still have does to get, so there's still a lot of time to uh, retrieve some of those goodies. In the field dress, I uh, I took the bits off. I took off uh, um, his nuts and his penis and hung those up in a tree. I was asked by the Times, the Times Up guys, like, do you do that for luck or do you do that? You know, is that something that you do uh, a lot? And I, I don't know. It was more of a tradition thing, I think. I think tradition really steeps a lot. Um, superstition. I'm very superstitious when it comes to baseball, and I think I can throw deer hunting also into that superstitious thing. But I took those and hung those up in a tree. I grabbed uh, actually a section of the briars uh, and stuck that in the mouth because that's where I found that deer laying in, and I stuck that in his mouth as his last meal and finished the, the job as far as uh, the field dressing. My little kill kit worked out great. Uh, had uh, had my shop towels to clean up with. I had my gallon Ziploc bag to throw the heart and the liver in. I, had, uh, I, I, for, I hadn't got the gloves in there yet, so I was gloveless. We just went straight, straight on in. Um, didn't need the uh, plastic tarp. Or at least the yeah the big contractor bag that I opened up I didn't need that because I didn't do a whole lot of work there it was kind of a get this job done get everybody home and then uh, then we're we're off to bed but having that at the bottom with the knife already to go with the drag already set it was a very nice easy way to get started for our field dress got him back to the shop got him hung up and again we enjoyed. A couple more beers sitting there around the deer, hanging from my rafters. It was an amazing night, and one that I have not quickly going to forget. Will there be other deer that I have an opportunity to? Yes, but I don't know, something about your first big one. Here in Michigan, it's I don't want to say it's necessarily a rite of passage, but you do see that there's a real celebration around a Michigan eight point that it is it is a milestone for a hunter. And for some, it happens the first day they go out. They get they go either you know they're, they're out with youth season or they're with their grandfather, they're with their dad, and they have the opportunity to take a buck and that's super special for them. It could be their first year solo, either with archery or with gun, and they get a chance to get their eight point, their big, massive deer. And, again, that's their their milestone. That's their mark that they are a hunter. And as I look at my, my deer that I have gotten, my little Euro mounts that I have lined up, I'm, in, I'm very much impressed with each of them, and I remember each of those hunts. And I enjoy the whole story of that. But yeah, it's kind of like Ruben from Escanaba and the Moonlight. I had to take my licks. I had to take lessons. I wasn't given an opportunity real quick to get that eight point. And I've had some opportunities in other bucks that have not turned out well. Some of them more devastating than others. But getting my big deer now 
is just a sweet, sweet treat. It is the sweetest dessert that I've gotten. And it's because of the work that I've had to put in. It's because of the effort that was needed to be able to get into this spot, to be given that opportunity. And even at that opportunity, I didn't have the best of setups. I had some hiccups. I had some obstacles to overcome. But sticking to it and fighting through it, I walked away with my eight point. 13 years in the making of being a hunter, and I finally got my eight point. Very, very happy about it. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed uh, our little tale. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of talk about this buck as I continue to break him down. Um, as of now, he hung up for six days and six days hanging, um, half with his hide on, half with his hide off. I had the hide left on the hams, not on purpose, mainly out of laziness. And then I had the cape taken off uh, the next day, and I got the cape and the head in the freezer so I could get that to my taxidermist, still living in my freezer right now. Uh, hopefully this week I can take him over there to begin that new process taxidermy what's that all about normally you just boil the head but uh no we're going the we're going the next route here and we're gonna try to get something nice put together but anyway that's my story i hope you enjoy it i hope you enjoy it about this meat hunter who finally struck it big on an eight point buck that gave him an opportunity that was following in on a doe who the doe tried to ruin my night but I was able to come through in the clutch as that buck tried to take an exit out the back door. I was able to sneak an arrow in him. With all that said on this story time, I do want to say thanks to TapiQ. TapiQ is a partner of mine. They have uh, they've provided me with some of those uh, Bluetooth probes that or the Bluetooth meat, meat probes that work out outstanding, whether it's my oven, whether it's in my pressure cooker, in my slow uh or in my crock pot, on the grill. They're an awesome way to make sure that I'm keeping an accurate gauge on the internal temp of whatever I'm trying to cook. So for a reverse sear, these things work awesome. If you're into making summer sausage as well, these are invaluable because they can give you a precise internal temp on the sausage as it's cooking. When you get to that 180, man, you can pull that thing out, quench it down into that ice bath, and be able to solidify that uh, that sausage making, chill it down, and then enjoy it. So TapiQ has been uh, a great product and a great partner to work with. Also, uh, UmaiDry, I'm working with that company. They make those synthetic bags that allow moisture to wick out of them. And so when you want to make real dry-aged treats... I'm currently working on some charcuterie. I have it equalizing in my fridge right now. It's it already spent a month uh, in one of these bags, wicking out the moisture. They got to 40% of what their excuse me. They got to 60% of their green weight. So I've lost 40% of the water. I then pulled them out of those bags, put them in new zip or uh, new 
vac bags and letting them equalize, letting whatever moisture is on the inside work its way back to the outside to even distribute it. And we're then going to serve that up uh, hopefully soon. I'm really excited to break into those. But those two companies have been awesome partners and just want to give them a quick shout out. But yeah, whether you have already gotten your buck and are excited about cutting it up for the first time yourself, or if you're still in the pursuit, whether it's the, the boning knife that you're going to be using or whether it's the broadhead that's on the tip of your arrow yet to be dipped in blood, make sure both those edges are really sharp.